Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com, movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's show because we're talking about Training Day, and I'm joined by the most King Kongist MFer I know, Rob DiCristino. <laughs> Are you a wolf, Patrick? Are you I, a wolf? I'm a sheep, unfortunately. Are you a wolf? I'm trying, trying real hard. <laughs> I was going to start, I was like, you know, I never think about what I'm going to say before I press record. And I was going to say uh, something about like, by the most corrupt cop I know. And then I thought better of it <laughs> because of the world we live in. I just decided I maybe let's not kick off the show that way. I will take King Kong. <laughs> He's got nothing on me. I uh, like this movie. I like this movie. You do? Okay, good. Uh, happy end of Junesploitation. We're recording this on the last day of Junesploitation. How did your month go, Rob? Uh, really good. I actually I uh, peeked behind the curtain. I still have to catch up the last couple of days. I've been busy, and I haven't been able to do the last two days. Uh, so I am going to do them um, at some point this week, even though it won't technically count. But uh, it's been really, really good. How's been yours? How's you know. Been, what? How's, uh, been? How, how's been yours? Uh, it's been a mixed bag, you know, as... As usual, I was I was looking a lot more forward to Junesploitation, I feel like, in years past, just because of the way that things are right now in the world and in my life and in my house. Um, it's just been a rough couple of months, and so this wasn't my best Junesploitation. I, was, I had limited access to movies, and um, placed a, we placed a big Vinegar Syndrome order you know, over a month ago in the hopes that like, well, this will come and this will cover half of our June exploitation. Uh, and it just got here like two days ago. So most of the days that would have worked with what we ordered, uh, we missed. Um, but I did have a chance to watch one thing that I'll talk about, but, uh, yeah, it was kind of a mixed bag. I, my, my thing this year was, and you know, every year we go in with a plan and stuff like that, or I do sometimes I, we talked about this last time, but I really got really comfortable with the rewatch this year. Like I really, I was trying to do like little double features every day and um, I mixed in new stuff. I mixed in like movie shames or like things that I know I hadn't seen that I wanted to just knock off um, the list. But um, I really, I, I get, I used to get so apprehensive about rewatching um, because I'm like, well, this is my opportunity to expose myself to something different. But the way you really avoid burnout is, is, is rewatching stuff, comfort stuff and, and um, you know, mixing in something that, is familiar i also looked at the comments a lot this year so thank you to everybody who was posting um recommendations and really paid a lot more attention to the discussion in the comments every day than i previously have okay. i kind of thought it and kind of just thought about it as like oh well, it looks like everybody's talking about this one or this one or that seems cool because it worked out because sometimes i was a day behind and so i would have to load up you know I, if i had a, a morning where i could watch like two or three movies i would do that and um and uh, so big thanks to everybody in the comments who was recommending stuff because uh, a lot of those recommendations really came through. Um, nice. But it was good. Yeah. yeah, it was overall. It was nice. It was just it was one of those things where I didn't have any huge highs or lows. I didn't ever feel like I didn't have that like uppity like like June exploitation like, oh, my, this is the greatest best thing ever. Woo! Like, you know, like kind of when it's like when F this movie fest starts and we're all like, woohoo, you know. <laughs> um, but but I also I also didn't have any complete burnout. Like I didn't have any like just screw movies. I'm not doing anything. Like I paced myself out enough. So, um, in terms of like what I found that I hadn't seen before, there wasn't a whole lot. But it just in terms of the experience of June's exploitation, I feel like 
I kind of did it, you know, not better, but at least as good as I've done it in previous years. So that's um, good. Yeah, it worked out. And I had a couple little discoveries, so it was cool. Nice. Uh, well, speaking uh, speaking of discoveries and what we've been watching, have you seen anything good lately? Yeah, so we'll start with uh, our boy, well, your boy, some people's boy, Scott Atkins. Uh, I finally caught up with Avengement from last year. Nice. Uh, Avengement was fun. Um, I'm, I, the other note that I made for Exploitation this year was a lot of my favorite discoveries were like, structure like movies that are structured in a way or um i don't want to say structured in a way that is original but structures in a structured in a way that you don't see all the time um and avengement is kind of atkins is holding these guys prisoner in a bar and you're sort of flashing back to you know previous things and the movie's structure kind of it uses the bar scenes as framing devices and um i really like that that, that i think that part of it stood out to me the prison flights are really fun and obviously atkins is really cool so um, you liked that one, right? I did. Yeah, I was a fan of it. Um, just moving quick. The other one uh, for I can't remember. I think it was Zombies Day. I finally caught up with uh, Sugar Hill. Oh, nice. Um, which is awesome. Uh, <laughs> I really, really, I really enjoyed Sugar Hill. Again, just kind of a play on. I mean, there have been mystical, you know, magic black exploitation movies before things like that things that have kind of gone into the occult but um just the idea of the, the sort of the zombie movie i don't really want to spoil it if anybody hasn't seen sugar hill but um this 1974 black exploitation film that kind of embraces the zombie genre as well as the kind of foxy brown kind of kick-ass lady uh black exploitation angle um and uh i i really don't have much to say about it aside from the fact i just really enjoyed it, it was one of those ones where it's you know it's I think it's 90 minutes and you just, you're watching it, you're on board the whole time and it's fun and it's over the top and there's these badass moments. And, um, it's kind of that great kind of ideal, um, by exploitation, uh, film with that really cool genre twist. And it's the rare, uh, I think PG rated zombie movie too. Is it really? I didn't actually notice that. I believe it is. And I could be talking out of turn, but I want to say it's a PG movie that just started streaming on shutter, right? Yeah, yeah, I watched. I watched. Uh, I did a couple couple days were shutter days, um, including uh, one of my jalos, which was all the colors of the dark, um, which I just saw recently hard, for the first time. Also, hard to pay attention to really anything in that movie. Aside <laughs> um, but uh, what did you think of that one? Because I thought it was fun. It was okay. Yeah, uh, not more my f- of a jalo guy than I am. So yeah, not it wasn't uh, one of my favorites. Um, but I definitely enjoyed watching it. You know, it pushed a lot of the buttons that I have for that specific genre. And like you said, it's it's just fun to watch Edwidge Fenich um, do anything. Um, yeah, I was kind of mixed on it. Yeah, the one I had more fun with was Touch of Death, um, which I think I watched for Fulci Day. <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's, that movie's wacky. Um, that was just really fun. You know, like... I think Fulci is the thing that I'm really starting to uh, uh, gather from a lot of the you know the Italians. I'm trying to figure out which ones you know. Well, Argento does this, and you know, I really think Fulci is the funny one. Um, I could be wrong about that. I don't know if I've seen enough, but every time I see something with Fulci, I, or something that stood out to me, especially about Touch of Death, was the humor. I don't know. Do you find him generally funny? Not. I wouldn't say overall, but he's he's rarely going for comedy. I mean, he started out doing comedy. That was kind of how he got his start as a director was making all these Italian comedies that are impossible to see now. 
um, most of his output in the 70s and 80s then is pretty non-comedic, but Touch of Death is... I'm, yeah. running, I'm running through all of his filmography in my head. That's the, the most overtly comedic that I could think of. I think that's the one that might be what it is. Maybe it's not his whole filmography, but just I think that the sense of humor or the fact that he's he's having fun with the genre a little bit. Um, again, I'm not as much of a connoisseur of the genre as you are, but I, I certainly enjoyed Touch of Death. I thought that was really fun. Um, I like a lot of people and I'm just running quick. Sorry. Yeah, uh, no. I, I also caught up with the five bloods. uh which it's weird to say caught up with it late, but even a week now. Is, <laughs> right. Yeah, it really is. Anything um, after that first weekend is like, oh, I finally saw it. You know. Yeah, I finally got to it. Um, again, it's. It, I, I think I said this in the comments. Like when Spike hits, he hits. Like it's. It's funny when Adam and I did a little Spike Lee retrospective a couple years ago, and I watched a few unseen Spike Lee films in a row, and it was kind of like two out of the like five really hit me. One was like not that great. The other two were like, okay, this is one of those ones where it's like, okay, I need to watch this six more times yeah. because you, it's a movie you need to let wash over you. It's a movie you need to really feel it's, it's spike being that great kind of didactic. Like he's on a soapbox and he doesn't care. And he's just going like, to, he's going to literally shove your face into these things he wants you to know. And, um, the performances are great. I'm not going to say really anything original except for that. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. It's um, still, I think my favorite movie of the year so far which again yeah. has an asterisk with it just because so few movies have come out but uh it's really really good have you gotten to watch it again i have not no okay. i'm looking forward to that second time just to kind of i don't know you know how you know, sometimes you 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 get high on a movie the first time and you're kind of like you're waiting to see if it hits you again the second time and yeah. i just know that with the performances and i know with a lot of the characters without spoiling anything kind of knowing where they end up um I know I sort of retroactively remembered some foreshadowing that I'm excited to see again this time, you know, with the way he lays it out. Right. Um, but, uh, no, love that one a lot. And then just the last one I'll talk about, uh, just June exploitation wise was, uh, 36 chamber of Shaolin, oh, uh, nice. which I watched for Kung Fu day. Um, that's great. And I know I picked it up, uh, cause our friends, Brian and Eric were talking about it with Quentin Tarantino, I think on one of the recent pure cinemas, um, and I made a note uh, for June exploitation to make sure that that was one of the ones because I think that was one of the ones that Tarantino brought up like over and over again. He mm -hmm. kept talking about that. Um, and uh, again, the movies that stood out to me were kind of the ones that kind of had a structure or a concept that I wasn't as familiar with or don't see a lot. Um, and the idea of this sort of trainee being indoctrinated into these multiple chambers and all these tests and deciding how he wants the philosophy of the martial art to to behave and stuff like that was. Uh, really interesting. So um, that one's really fun. Yeah, I'm a fan of that one. Um, uh, hard to find. Hard to find on Blu-ray, right? Is it? Or, or is it out of print or something? I, I you know my first stop is always Amazon. I always look. And right. I think some. I, I'd have to look it. I shouldn't have started that conversation. No, that's I have, okay. I haven't, I haven't looked it up, but I remember seeing it. I'm thinking it was a little expensive, and then I looked again, and it's all that was kind of out of print, or maybe it was an import or something like that. But it's twenty five dollars on Blu-ray. That's no, not too bad, I guess. All right. no. Doesn't appear to be out okay. of print. I think I own it, but I couldn't tell you right now because it's in a box with everything else. But I'm pretty sure I have a copy. Everything's in boxes. Yeah, no, that was really, really fun. So, yeah, that's um, a good one. If you're Gordon, if if uh, if you enjoyed Gordon Liu in that movie, I highly recommend uh, Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, which I think you can watch for free on Amazon. 
Heat diagram pole flare. But that movie is amazing. Adding it to the list. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's all I got. I just want to run quick through some uh, June exploitation. All right. Um, most of mine are non June exploitation related. Um, last week we did a show on Eve's Bayou, and I talked about how I hadn't seen Casey Lemon's other movies. So we remedied that and watched uh, Talk to Me, which is her 2007 or 2008 biopic of uh, Petey Green, the Washington, D.C. DJ who kind of shook things up, uh, starring Don Cheadle and Chiwetel Ejiofor. Very standard biopic stuff. Goes through a lot of the same beats as something like Private Parts. Maybe there's only so many beats you can go through for a a radio movie. Um, But very well acted and well done. Not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination, but I... It's not as... It doesn't feel as original or as kind of daring as something's as something like uh ease bayou i have not seen it no um two documentaries that i will talk about quickly uh the first is called athlete a which just showed up on netflix i want to say last week and is very much a companion piece or will be very familiar to anyone who watched last year's documentary uh, called like At the Heart of the Gold or The Heart of the Gold. I don't remember the exact title. It was an HBO documentary about the USA Gymnastics sex abuse scandal with trainer uh, Larry Nasser, And this movie covers that same story but does it through a slightly different lens. It's sort of looking at the first girl who came forward um, and was referred to as Athlete A because she was anonymous uh, in the press. Um, and looks, it, it indicts USA Gymnastics, I would say, a little bit more. It's a story of this small uh, Indiana newspaper called, I think, the Indianapolis Star that's sort of breaking this story and, and keeps pressing forward with it. You know, I think when other people have either ignored it or moved on. Um, but I think it's definitely worth watching, especially if you don't know anything about that story. If you, if you missed that HBO documentary, you're, you're kind of going in cold. And I think it's obviously a story worth knowing at a time when, you know, it's more important uh, than ever to really amplify some of these voices and, believe these girls who are coming forward, you know, uh, obviously we've been seeing a lot of that in the news lately. And so the, the documentary couldn't come at a, at a more relevant time. Uh, of course the sad news is that it's kind of always been relevant. It just hasn't always, it's been swept under the table. Um, and the other documentary is called what she said, the art of Pauline kale, uh, which is just a documentary about film critic. Pauline kale talks a little bit about her upbringing, talks about her, uh, writing, um, Sarah Jessica Parker does the voice of a lot of her reviews and her, she reads her writing. Um, but then there's also, you know, archival interviews and footage, um, to kind of supplement a lot of that. And then there's talking heads like Alec Baldwin and Quentin Tarantino and, um, some journalists and and other people whose names maybe aren't as recognizable fellow critics and stuff. Um, are you a Pauline Kael fan? Oh yeah, I um, I was just thinking as you were talking because I I 
I didn't even realize this documentary had come out. I remember seeing a trailer or a press release or something about it, but I didn't realize that it had come out. And what was really funny is sometimes I'll go and because I grew up with the Leonard Maltin movie guide. Sure. Uh, my grandfather, my grandfather used to collect those, and so I saw a couple of the old ones. And sometimes I used to go and look at a movie and crack it open and see what he wrote about it. Or, you know, sometimes you see something and you go on Roger Ebert and you look up, well, what did, what did Ebert say about it? And then I have the um, 5001 Nights at the Movies mm-hmm. hardback, that she, it's a, which is more or less just a compilation of her reviews, kind of a similar thing. And it's just always funny because you always crack it open. I look at it and I'm like, well, that's different than what everybody else said, <laughs> <laughs> which is great I mean, in a great way. You know, she was she was she was wonderful. You know, I don't know. I, you know, like any great critic, you don't always agree with her. But um, no, she I'm a big fan of her. She was wonderful. I'm actually really excited to see this because I didn't realize it had come out. When you find reviews of hers that you don't agree with, do you retroactively send death threats? <laughs> I do not. What? I do not. That's what Not you're supposed to do when somebody doesn't agree with your opinion. Especially if it's a lady. Oh, gosh, yes. Um, yeah, it was always a weird thing when I sort of first discovered Pauline Kael. I would go back and read, you know, I'd think of a movie that she wrote about, and I'd go back and read the review, and more times than not, she did not like it, you know, and I remember feeling just so disappointed, like like it somehow invalidated my own feelings. This is, you know, I was a young person. Uh, that it somehow invalidated my feelings about the movie. And as I've grown older, I can separate the two things and say, it's okay that she doesn't like it. I still love it. Right. Um, but there is, there is that element of kind of that hero worship where it's, it's your own sense of like, I had to get away from that. Like when, like, like for example, you know, when I write a movie, when I write about a movie for the site, I, I can't read a review or I can't really read anything before I write because yeah. I've been, I've been doing it so long now that like, cause I used to be like, well, I got to make sure like I'm kind of in line with the general consensus. And mm. maybe if something has like a turn of phrase or something that will inspire a little bit and not, but you just, you want to get a sense of the culture, like, you know, or God forbid I go on film Twitter and I look to see what people are generally <laughs> saying about the movie, but I've really gotten away from that. But I, what I will still admit to doing is probably 10 or 15 minutes after I email you, whatever I've written, I will go on and start reading to see like, well, <laughs> But else did, you know, so it is funny how that that exact thing you're talking about it follows us, you know, even as writers, like it follows us, but but it does kind of relate back to our initial feeling of like I want to have that validation of like I had a good opinion, or yeah. and then when, when somebody you respect and disagrees, you're like, and then you start to see her point or you know anybody's point, you're like, wow, oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about it that way, and then you totally reevaluate your whole point of view and. You have a nice little crisis. That's wonderful. <laughs> well, I think I've talked about this before, but I remember waking up because I grew up religiously reading Roger Ebert and really looking up to him. And I remember waking up the morning that Batman 89 came out, and I've never been more excited to see a movie. And I opened his review, and it was, I think, two and a half stars, maybe two stars, yeah. but I think it was two and a half. And I was crushed. Because, and I hadn't seen it yet, you know, so, but I'd already decided I was going to like it because how could I not? This was the most important movie ever made. Um, and how could he not, you know, like this thing that I knew was just going to be the greatest movie ever? And I was never mad at him. And I, you know, I got over it. And I went and saw the movie and made up my own mind. But now, you know, as an adult, I'm like, yeah, no, two and a half stars is about right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it is funny how, how important. I first from kind of person, I guess whatever your discipline is, if you love, you know, sports or cooking or whatever, like you develop that thing where you, you idolize people. And then the more you 
kind of start to feel yourself a little bit. You start to get that you a little bit more confidence. And then sometimes I'll, you know, when I read, especially if it's like a contemporary, you know, I'm like, like, well, screw that guy. He's totally wrong. Hmm. Like, it's just, you know what I mean? It's funny how it's funny how that develops and how we, we grow and change. And we retain some of those things. We retain some of that love. And um, I, I think about with, with Ebert, I think that as a culture, we've kind of, you know, Ebert has been gone, unfortunately, long enough for us to kind of be able to look at his, I, I don't want to say his bad reviews, but his, let's say his misses, you know, things that we all sort of universally agree he kind of got wrong. Um, and I think there's an almost a new context to that where you kind of say like, like, oh, it is interesting how he felt about that or how he felt about this or what his preferences were. And I think in a way that when he was alive or any, any writer who's alive, I feel like we almost don't have that context or that or that perspective during the time where, for example, you're opening up the newspaper and being disappointed with the Batman review. Um, and I think it's interesting how a person who uh, I want to be careful how I say this. Some people argue that reviewing or being a critic isn't actually an art form. It's not actually doing anything. You're just responding to what somebody else created. But I do feel that if you're doing it well enough, you can create a a, a body of work that reflects a point of view mm -hmm. in a in a really lasting way. Mm -hmm. um, I just I find it very interesting now when you look at like film Twitter or things like that where people are talking retroactively about. Um, about uh, Ebert and some of the things he felt, you know, he was down on horror, or he was down on this or that. And um, I would, I'd love to see kind of, is that, does the Pauline Kael documentary kind of go into, is it, is it just talking heads kind of just loving her or is there any, is there a, is, a, is it one of those documentaries where there's two plots? Um, I mean, there's a little bit of criticism about how she could be nasty about how she had certain, you know, these acolytes, Andrew Saris's widow gets a little bit of screen time saying, you know, she was really mean to my husband when they kind of went back and forth over their whole <laughs> auteur debate. Um, but it's mostly, it's mostly her words and her voice, you know, and wasn't she That's great and important for film criticism. And, and, and one of the things I took away from her, uh, just reading her as a young person was not only a greater appreciation for, uh, specifically Brian De Palma. I feel like it was Pauline Kael more than anybody who kind of turned me on to Brian De Palma and made me appreciate him. And he, you know, remains one of my favorite directors. Um, but also that she was championing his work at a time when that wasn't considered highbrow and it certainly wasn't cool to champion Brian De Palma's work. And, um, and that's something I've taken away too, just that, you know, like what you like and champion what you want to champion and what you believe in. And, um, it was interesting on like something like uh, during June exploitation on something like Albert Pune day. Obviously I picked that because a, it's appropriate given how many movies he made and how many of them would kind of fall into the category of exploitation. Like he's a, an important name in the exploitation genre, but also because I genuinely like him as a filmmaker and wanted to celebrate him. And, and the comments were probably 50 50 in terms of like, I kind of like what this guy's doing and this makes me want to check out more stuff. And this guy sucks and he's a hack. And this movie I watched was really not good. Um, and both of those opinions are totally fair, you know, but it was, 
it goes back to that thing where it's like if you like a thing, you want other people to like it. And so there is a little bit of a sting when when people are like, oh, this movie sucked and I, and I don't like this filmmaker. Um, but again, I've well, outgrown caring that much. Speaking of somebody who watched, I think, four Albert Pune movies this June exploitation, I can say that you are our Pauline Kale. So thank you for <laughs> And he is my, my Brian De Palma. So that's uh, that's excellent. Um, two more movies I'll talk about quickly. One I finally saw, again, thanks to the Vinegar Syndrome sale, I finally saw Patty Hearst. Have you ever seen it? I have not. So this was a Paul Schrader movie that I had never seen and had wanted to see for years because I knew just a tiny bit about the Patty Hearst case, um, but not enough. And the movie taught me a little bit more, but not a ton. You know, it's not a documentary. It's sort of a very subjective, here's what this person went through um, mentally and emotionally, not so much like beat for beat, then this happened, then this happened. Um, Natasha Richardson plays Patty Hearst. Ving Rhames is in it. Dana Delaney is in it. Uh, William Forsyth is in it. Um, it's really, really good. I, I highly recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen it. I feel like it's been a little bit hard to come by for years. I know this is the first time it's been out on Blu-ray. Looking to see if it's available streaming anywhere. I don't know that it is. Doesn't appear to be. No. But... Yeah, no, I'd never seen it. I don't know that I can't 100% say that I've even heard of it. So, good. Okay. Um, And then I'll talk just briefly about a movie that I wasn't crazy about, only because I know that you also saw it. uh, And that is the new Shudder original zombie movie, Yummy. Ah. Which uh, I saw a trailer for, I think, during maybe the last episode of The Last Drive-In. Thought it looked pretty great, um, and uh, am I? Uh, should they just stop making zombie movies for a while? Like, there's nothing especially wrong with it. It's about a girl who goes to a plastic surgery clinic to get a breast reduction, which I guess is supposed to be funny, or I don't know what it's supposed to be. I don't know what the movie's take on that is. Um, because it doesn't really factor into the plot, doesn't really factor into the character at all. It's just sort of the hook. And then there's a zombie outbreak, and this group of strangers have to work, you know, find their way out of the clinic while being besieged by zombies. The effects are good. Uh, it's it's well directed enough, but man, every beat, particularly the final beats, uh, just made me not want to watch any more movies. It was very like. And I agree with what you're saying. Like you have this opportunity when you set a zombie film in the world of body modification. I think there's a lot you can do with that. And the movie is instead just sets a guy's penis on fire. And then you're kind of like, okay, well that's fun. But yeah, is, that was that. There anything weirdly else you enough, that was topic? a highlight for me. <laughs> that was because I had seen yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Fangoria movie Porno earlier this year, and there is a whole sequence of genital trauma in that movie. So I have these two to compare now, and I will say that Yummy has the better dick trauma. <laughs> Patrick probably at this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, genital mutilation is fun for everyone, obviously. <laughs> but um, I just, I was, I was looking at it as this. I, I agree with you that I kind of just got to this point in the movie where I was like, oh, well, this is just like a zombie. Like after the setup, it's kind of like, okay, well, I, I know where this is going, and yeah. I'm sort of half in, half out of it. And yeah, it was a little, like you said, well shot, fun effects, but 
eh, you know, very difficult to, to justify, you know, a recommendation, certainly. And I just get really irritated when a filmmaker really wants you to know that they've seen Night of the Living Dead. Like, yeah, yeah. okay, I got it. You can do that thing with your ending. That's impressive. But uh, it is almost never satisfying. I won't say never. Almost never satisfying. It's just one of those things where, like, your 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 point of view or your your perspective, you're, it kind of you kind of have to agree with the movies, um, what the movie is communicating to you. Because, like you said at the opening, it's this thing where the woman's going in for a breast reduction surgery, and there's this sort of drama with the boyfriend, and it's like, oh, is he happy about it? Is he sad about it? Is he he's he's doing this and that? And it's like, I it, I guess if you're a young person who hasn't yet decided how you would feel if your female partner was going to get a breast reduction surgery you would be on board with this protagonist but you're kind of to me it was just like i don't know this seems i don't want to say it seems juvenile because it's a zombie movie but like at the same time you could do something you could say something more with this you could because i think there is a lot to be said about how people voluntarily modify their bodies and how a body might be you know modified in a zombie apocalypse but like you said the Night of the Living Dead thing, which we won't spoil, but... He, I, I guess I kind of already have. <laughs> no, but we probably don't need to tell you, like, right. hey, what's the thing everybody knows about Night of the Living Dead? Yeah, this right. movie doesn't. Um, yeah, it just wasn't very... I just, I definitely tuned out about uh, about 30, 40 minutes in where, like, I'm watching it, but, yeah, it wasn't really anything new. And here's what I want to ask you. Do you think it's possible, and I know the answer is probably yes, um, to uh, mangle your dick? No. Um <laughs> Do you think it's possible on for a film at this level, um, production-wise? Do do you think it is still possible to truly innovate? Do you do you think that the red, uh, how do I say this? The availability of very sophisticated filmmaking equipment, because um, this movie you know looks very much like it was shot on digital and, and makes the most of limited sets and so on. Nice little low-budget production. Do you think that it's still really possible to innovate um, in a world where you can really shoot a movie on an iPhone and have it look just fine? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, I agree with you, but I'm wondering where the next... Because that's the thing that I came out of Yummy with, where I was like, this could have been so much because it looks and feels like a movie and it's got cool effects. And Mm -hmm. it's almost like if if Carpenter was making the thing, but like he just didn't have the imagination and it was kind of just ended up being like an okay monster movie about guys locked in a freezer. You know, it wasn't really anything special and that X factor that comes into it, that makes something special. You know, obviously you want art to be democratic. You want everybody to have access to any kind of filmmaking technology they want to have. But it's almost, I almost felt like, like yummy took it for granted. Whereas like you had all these, you had all this opportunity and that's what you said. Right. That was disappointing. Yeah, I guess that, and that's part of the issue too, is like, there's something a little bit self-satisfied is probably overly critical. Maybe that's not fair. Everybody's clearly trying to make a good movie. Um, but I think, you know, you don't even have to innovate. You just have to execute. Even executing a formula well is still enough for me to get an enjoyable experience. So I don't know why something like Yummy really didn't work for me because they're doing nothing if not executing a formula maybe they're just not doing it especially well um, because the, the, the rare moments when it does innovate, like the guy getting his sticks out on fire, 
uh, I sit up a little bit, right? I'm like, well, okay, I haven't really seen that in a movie before, so that's kind of interesting. And zombie movies have the, a great potential to include things like that. I'm not talking specifically about dick trauma, but we can talk about it more. Um, but Always just, on the table. <laughs> I think back to something like, uh, I did not really like the first Dead Snow, but I walked away from Dead Snow 2 having enjoyed it because there's a lot of energy and because there's all kinds of stuff that I hadn't seen in a movie before. And I feel like yummy could have at least given me a bunch of stuff I haven't seen in a movie before. And I might've walked away liking it, but unfortunately it's mostly beats and images that are completely familiar to me. To be fair, just us saying dick trauma is probably going to be enough for some people to watch yummy. So if that's you, then Go live your truth. And, you, and and people may really, really like it. You know, if you're a big yeah. time zombie fan, there's certainly enough in the movie to like. Um, you know, it's going to deliver the things that you want from a movie like this. I just have seen too many movies like this at this point, maybe. I, I think that's what it is. I think because yeah. I agree with you that the movie doesn't do anything especially wrong. It's just like, okay, next. Like, there wasn't really anything special. It's it's mm-hmm. a shame because it's it's hard to judge a movie like that, but here we are. You're going to have a character who gets bit and is trying to hide it. You have the stuff with the mom. I mean, it's just like you can draw lines to every other movie that this is, you know, not necessarily referencing, but ripping off. Uh, ah, whatever. Is this a- is this a calling card movie? Is this a first feature? Do we know? I, I don't know, up. actually. I do know that we've probably already spent too much time on Yummy. Absolutely. And just for the record, yes, it is the first feature okay. of this uh, director whose name I will destroy if I try to. Uh, <laughs> he's from the Netherlands, and I hope he makes a better movie than Yummy because he's clearly a competent director. Yes, definitely. And and maybe that's... I will I will see his next movie, you know, just based on Yummy because it's put together well, um, and I want to see him do something a little bit more original. Bigger dick trauma, more dick more trauma. dick trauma. An entire movie about again the way that the I just appreciated the way that it continued to build upon itself. Yeah, uh, that sequence really was the highlight of the movie. Um, was- let's talk about Training Day. Let's do it. Uh, 2001's Training Day, directed by Antoine Fuqua, written by David Ayer, which I will argue is this movie's <laughs> greatest crime, <laughs> is that it gave us David Ayer, uh, <laughs> and starring Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke. I'm sorry, Academy Award winner Denzel Washington and Academy Award nominee Ethan Hawke. Um boy uh where are you at on training day so i like training day okay. um even though as you say david ayer is the king of the agro douchebag and it is a huge problem that this movie helped along uh his career um although he is credited as a co-writer on the first fast and furious so i don't know whose fault it is but um i doesn't enjoy he, have, training... did, did he have something to do with street kings also I think so. Well, he did End of Watch as well, which I remember liking. Am I wrong in that? I think I remember oh, when I saw End of Watch that I liked End of Watch. Um, that's the only other Ayer script, just looking at his IMDb, that's the only other movie where I really go, ah, oh, you know, I really like that one. Because I think I've seen most of the other ones. 
He directed um, Street Kings, but didn't write it. Didn't write it, okay. I like Street Kings. I like Street Kings, too. So I like Street Kings. I like End of Watch. The rest, I you know, we can talk about. But um, I like Training Day, and I think, one, I like it. Uh, I like it structurally. I like stuff, you know, it's it's almost a one crazy night movie, except it takes place during the day. Um, the, the the concept, the idea of literally it's this cop's first day and ends up kind of being his last day on in this particular uh, uh, pursuit. Um, the performances, obviously. The biggest thing that stands out to me watching it now, though, is that we all know an aggro douchebag like this. Um and watching it this time, because I've seen it a couple times before and always liked it, that was the part that fascinated me, was the way that the movie uses that character, the Alonzo character, um, to seduce you in the same way that Ethan Hawke is being seduced, um, using the Scott Glenn character to kind of play off that structure a little bit. And it kind of keeps, it keeps elevating itself. It keeps uh, bringing up the intensity um, throughout the course of the film and requiring you to kind of think about how far you would go along with this person. I would argue that the Ethan Hawke character is underwritten a little bit. Um, there's some turns near the end that I don't know if I necessarily believe. Uh, but I also think that the movie is this character. And I personally was projecting a lot of these kinds of people that I know onto the Denzel, uh, Denzel Washington character. And that's the part of it that really stuck with me. Um, that really brought me along with the movie this time. I don't know where are you at on this. Movie? I overall like it. Um, I have some issues with the second half of it, and it's the kind of movie that, like, uh, I'm reminded of, like Ridley Scott's Gladiator. Gladiator was a movie that I liked uh, about you know these old timey gladiators in competition and battling, and like, hey, that was pretty well done, and all of a sudden we're throwing best picture and best actor at it. And I'm like, wait, whoa, 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 back up, back up. I liked this movie when it was pulp. I don't like this movie as much when it is critically lauded, uh, art. Uh, and I have a little bit of the same reaction with training day, which is like, I like this movie. Wait, we're going to start throwing Oscars at it. All right. Maybe I like it a little bit less, which is really stupid. I recognize, but it, it elevates it to this another, to another echelon, uh, that I don't think the movie necessarily deserves. Um, but I was looking at Antoine Fuqua's filmography. Is this his best movie? Of the movies that I've seen, which is most Yeah, I that, literally think I've seen all of them. I think I've seen almost all of them. Um, I would argue... To me, yes. To me, yes, this is his best movie. The one that I would put on before the other ones, yes. I like his Magnificent Seven. I, that one I like a lot. Um, I uh, like The Equalizer, uh, I think, if I remember it correctly. Mm. But yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> or, or Equalizer 2. I don't remember which one I like. But I, I think I like one, not the other. But Equalizer uh, 2 no. might be better than The Equalizer, but... I think I like Equalizer 2 better, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I like, I agree with the Magnificent Seven, um, other than that, yeah, no, I, I would say this is, might be the only one that I would put on. Oh, okay. I, I might watch Replacement Killers also. Okay. Um, but that's just, might just not have, yeah, might not have seen it recently enough to remember. Yeah, no, it's not, uh, it's not a great movie at all. Um, 
So let me ask you this. Do you feel like Ethan Hawke is being seduced by the Denzel Washington character? Because for me, he's going along with things because he thinks that's what he needs to do to get the job that he wants to yeah. get. At at no point in the movie do I think he's drawn into the world of the Denzel Washington character. And that isn't necessarily a failure of the movie if that's not the movie that they're trying to make. Um, because he kind of retains his morality throughout the entire film. And the only time he really compromises himself is when he uh, smokes his, you know, PCP laced weed or whatever. Um do you think he's being seduced by the Denzel character? Well, that's where I argue when, when I said before about the character being underwritten, because I don't necessarily think that he is being seduced. I think that I think he is doing that thing that we've all done, or maybe I should just speak for myself. I'll use my eyes. <laughs> doing that thing that I've done in situations where you are the new person and you're kind of going along with something and you're kind of seem you're scared and you want to put on a good face, but you also want to kind of seem like, you know, that you're down and you're, you're okay. And you like, when he tells the story in the diner that he thinks is a good story about the drug stop and all that. And it seems like he's got, you know, um, it seems like he's got, uh, uh, Denzel's character for a second and then he kind of turns the table on him. Um, I would argue that as a viewer, the movie does more for me than it does for Ethan Hawke's character. I agree with you that because really at no point he's constantly pulling guns on, on Denzel. He's constantly arguing with him. He's constantly disagreeing with him, agreeing with him. The, the pitch or the balance, I think, is one of the things that Denzel does really well in this movie is the longer you watch it, the more you can tell when he's full of shit and when he's actually confident. Because in the beginning, I think he is actually this big swinging dick and we mm-hmm. can talk about you know, we can talk about how every single Denzel Washington impression anybody ever does is basically training day. <laughs> um, I, I find myself drawn into it. So I would argue that I'm more seduced by him than Ethan Hawke's character is. I almost feel like it's devil and angel on your shoulders kind of as a viewer. So I agree that the Ethan Hawke character is I, – I think there's a – you mentioned the second half of the movie. I think there's a turn the movie takes that it doesn't necessarily earn through the character. Um, I, for example, don't – I don't – believe that hawk goes into that jungle the dangerous neighborhood at the end of the movie by himself um i don't believe that the movie is done enough to make him alone and feel as though no other cops will help him nobody no other authority figures will help him um that part that turn near the end i think is underwritten but to me i feel the movie is effective because it is just us with this character in his car listening to what he says, being drawn in, hearing his point of view, knowing he's full of shit, but also there is a charisma to that. Um, you know, one of the things I really wanted to get into was this idea of that kind of cult of personality that, as I said before, that big swinging dick where like, it's just a person who talks so loudly that they start to be right whether they are or not, right. or they repeat these little aphorisms, and these little sayings over and over again, where it seems like they've got a handle on things. And, you know, you should really listen to them, or you should believe them. And especially, you know, what I do as a teacher, you know, you want to try to be a good example, you want to try to be you want to project confidence, you want to project enthusiasm, you want to project this, you want to project that you want to walk into a room and really make everybody feel as though not just like, oh, I'm so smart, or I know this, but like, they're safe, like they're secure. Like, you know, if I walk into a classroom, it's like, I want my, my students to feel like, okay, 
we're secure in the room. He's going to be, you know, he's going to be fair. He's going to be this. He's going to be that. Maybe you can learn something here or there, but maybe you can't. There is that thing for me where when I watch it, I'm like, okay, this is the kind of guy, and it's kind of the Goodfellas effect, where it's like, this is the kind of guy I think I want to be until we get to that point where we realize we absolutely should never be him and he's terrible. Um, so I agree with you that the Ethan Hawke character is underwritten, that he's not necessarily ever seduced. I think that that part of the movie is where we could use a little bit more texture. Um, not that I think that Hawk is bad in the movie. I think that he just needs to be given a little bit more leeway. I actually really like his performance in the movie, and in some ways I liken it to the the dynamic of, and it might have been Pauline Kael who first wrote about this. I can't remember who, which critic it was that pointed out that when you watch something like Rain Man, that Tom Cruise is actually the one giving the superior performance. Right. Does, Dustin Hoffman is given all of the acting to do. And Tom Cruise has to just sort of react to that. Um, and what he's doing is a lot quieter, you know, comparatively speaking for Tom Cruise. He's still thrusting his fists around a lot and having his big <laughs> freakouts and stuff. Um, but this movie is Denzel Washington, you know, acting with a capital A and Ethan Hawke doing something much quieter. Um, and so actually when, when the Oscars nominated Ethan Hawke's performance, I, I thought that was actually kind of impressive of them to see, to even see his performance past Denzel Washington. Um, I agree with you because there's a moment just before we move on, there's a moment in the, in Scott Glenn's house where I think at this point he's had PCP, right? He puts a, he's had a shot of something. He wants him to drink a beer and so on. And it is also his first day and he's trying to match, you know, Denzel's intensity and the character is sitting on the couch. And I think at one point Scott, it might've been when Scott Glenn is telling a snail joke, but he, Ethan Hawke is sitting there with those, like, it's almost like bug eyes. Like he's kind of like looking at him and he's tilting his head into the scene. He's just listening, yeah. but he's kind of in this thing where it's almost like you can feel how overwhelmed sensorily he is. Not just like, Oh, he's drunk actor. He's high acting. It's not just like, Oh man, I'm crazy. But he's just sitting there and he's kind of watching and listening and you see like you can almost see in his eyes like kind of the way he's it's almost too much. And, you know, we talk a lot about with awards where it's, you know, best actor is often just most actor, you know, or best makeup is often just most makeup or, you know, best costume is just most costume. In this case, I think it is a really good example of like while they actually gave a really interesting performance, uh, an award that, um, as you said, is, is a little bit harder for the behavior is a little bit harder to pull off convincingly than maybe Denzel's. Well, just a nomination. They didn't actually give it an award. <laughs> uh, I thought he won for anything. No. Ethan Hawke? No. Oh, no. Jim Broadbent won. Okay. He was nominated for Training Day. He did not win. He, he didn't even win for so you're Boyhood. Saying, you're saying he should have won. I'm saying I was impressed that they even nominated him because... There's so much acting going on at the center that the Academy is sort of notoriously short-sighted. And the fact that he could, they could even see beyond the Denzel Washington performance to what any other actor in a scene was doing impressed me because I have very low expectations for the Academy. Um, and all of that sounds very critical of Denzel Washington, and I, and I don't mean it to. I mean, I do think this is a case where I think he's very good in the movie. I think... He's overacting in a part that requires him to overact and showboat. Um, 
And I think his Oscar win is a case of, well, we got to give it to him sometime. Like, this is his makeup yeah, Oscar yeah. for... for He had already won one, I believe, for Supporting Actor for Glory. Um, but he had never won Best Actor and obviously deserves it for any number of movies, chief among them Malcolm X. Uh, and had never won, so it makes sense that he finally gets an Oscar. I just... Training Day seems like the wrong movie to do it. The other moment I wrote down, um, there's a, uh, in the car when Ethan Hawke tells him, I'll do anything you tell me to or something like that. He yeah. kind of, it's after his like, first little test. There is that, speaking of Ethan Hawke's eyes, there is that sincerity in that line delivery. And it's really quiet. And, and I wrote it down when I was watching the movie this time because that is that, talking about the film's structure, that is that moment where he goes almost from being afraid of him, of Alonzo, to buying in. And even if he's just bullshitting, he's at least willing to give the bullshit back and, and put that forward. Mm-hmm. Um, as I enjoy that moment as well. Yeah, I mean, I like the structure up to a point. I like I like the idea that it really is over the course of one day. Um, basically, not sun up to sun down, but sun up to sun up, basically. Um, and that we're just sticking with these characters over the course of this day. I think that's really interesting. I think once they kill Scott Glenn, the movie starts to fall apart for me. In terms of just believability or just in terms of the character? Um, I think the story starts to fall apart. I think the whole movie starts to repeat itself. Um, I think it just has run out of things to say. And then once we're in the scene where like Denzel is surrounded by all the people in town and they're just watching him and they slowly walk away <laughs> in disgust, yeah. that stretches believability. For a movie that's trying really hard to be gritty and realistic, um, it turns very sort of weirdly sentimental and uh, it just becomes bullshit for me. I think this movie... And I, and I mentioned earlier, you know, structural issues are maybe around the middle of the movie. The movie starts to lose me as well. Um, I think that the movie could use another half hour of or at least a different half hour in the middle somewhere, because the movie does in the early goings um, really contrast. And again, I'm watching the movie, imagining I'm in the car with him and he's talking this big game and he's saying all these things. And he's you know talking about how he knows this guy on the street. He knows this guy and this guy's his buddy and this guy's his contact and all that. And he goes in and manipulates the people. And then as they are walking away and Alonzo is self-satisfied, he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, you know it or whatever. And he's walking away, got what he wanted. We hear we see Ethan Hawke hear the guy whisper like that guy's an asshole or like, you know, I hate that guy or whatever. And if the movie had layered that on a little bit more. I think that the jump to everybody in the neighborhood turning their backs on him would seem a less like, as you're saying, it would stand out a little less. It's still, it would still be over the top, but I think it would, it would at least feel more like a payoff. I think there's a half hour that you could put in this movie where Hawk's character is starting to feel out a way out of this, because I do think it jumps to, he murders him. He tries to murder him very quickly mm-hmm. the scene with ethan Hawke in the bathtub with the plot device of uh you know Chekhov's little girl's wallet um <laughs> i i don't have a problem with that because i do think it reflects the way that hawk could see his character in the future treating 
the people that he's meant to police, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later, um, because he, you know, the 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 gangster says to him, you know, like you know, you did me this solid by helping my cousin, you know, I'm gonna go against what I've been paid to do and save your life. That speaks to kind of that third way that it seems like Hawk's character is looking for. Um, but the movie doesn't let that breathe enough. The movie jump. If there had been a scene before that or a couple scenes before that where he's really feeling his way around other options and he's kind of tr- he's thinking about the reality of what Alonzo is saying, but also proposing maybe different ways of doing things. But as you said, David Ayer can't write in a way that's not just <laughs> you know like he just, he just he needs people to bump up against each other. So rather than you know, there's that conversation after the uh, the Scott Glenn killing where. He had Denzel has that really emotional moment, which we think is an emotional moment when really he's just full of shit. But he's telling Ethan Hawke about how he can help him, and this is the way it is, and you just need to you know be on board and blah blah blah. And that's the moment where I start to be able to tell the difference between Alonzo actually being confident and trying to bullshit his way out of something. And yeah. I think it's in the odds. Um, if the movie in that moment, before pivoting just to the second half, where it's Hawk is on the run, and we really start to see Denzel with his tail between his legs. If there was a little bit more fleshed out, a little bit more layering of um, the Ethan Hawk character exercising some other options, then I think that that would definitely not solve, but uh, you know, kind of alleviate a little bit of the concerns you're bringing up with the second half of the movie. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um... And I, and I and I feel bad uh, anytime I start saying, "Well, a movie should do this instead," you know, right? Instead of oh, no. critiquing the what the movie is, I'm saying like, "Ah, here's what they should have done differently." Um, I just I just feel like by the time we get to that house where the the murder has been set up, um with cliff curtis i just part of me is like how did we get here part of me is like how are we doing this again part of me is like not buying this notion that they're going to let him go uh even if he did do something good earlier in the film you know and i I, there's a little bit of like shouldn't doing the right thing have been its own reward and <laughs> not just like shouldn't being a police officer and stopping a rape in progress have been its own reward. I don't have a problem with that scene when it's just its own scene, when he sees something happening and he jumps out of a practically moving car to put a stop to it. It tells us a lot of what we want to know about the Ethan Hawke character for it to then come up again and be the thing that saves his life. I get that David Ayer is trying to say that like, see, you know, being a fundamentally decent human being will pay off. But I also don't think that that squares with what is otherwise a very, very cynical movie. Yeah, no, I, I, and I don't think it's, I don't think we're necessarily saying that the movie, I think we're just saying the movie needs more of a flavor. It already has to me. I don't think there's anything fundamentally different. The movie needs, but, maybe layering on a little bit more of, of something it already introduced as, as would be my point. But yeah, it is interesting to think about it as that one nice thing that he did while it does demonstrate strength of character. There's also no other situation in which that would like, he literally, he met the one gangster he needed to meet. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it is a right. Ra- extraordinarily contrived co- uh, coincidence that doesn't necessarily have anything else to do with 
as you said, the rest of the movie's tone. But when I was looking at it, I was looking at it from this perspective of like, he's goody two shoes. We know that doesn't work. Anybody who's worked in any system long enough knows that there will always be cuts around, there will always be shortcuts. There will always be ways in which people corrupt the system and get away with it. There's a certain degree to which some systems need to be corrupted. Some systems need to be altered. You need to work. You know, anybody who's ever managed any group, it's like, well, there's a certain amount of contraband that needs to be able to move without, you know, in order to keep the peace, in order to establish trust and things like that. And Denzel obviously has gone way over the edge. He's gone way too far. Um, And Ethan Hawke potentially could find that balance. And I, I, I agree with you, like you're saying, which is, that David Ayer is saying, here's that moment where he sees or we see that being a good cop and also having a good relationship with criminals, they can both be, you know, they can both be intertwined or something like that. But as you're saying, the movie doesn't really necessarily do much with that in its in its in its climax and its conclusion because we see Alonzo get this comeuppance, but we also get the sense that that could have happened at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when, with the one thing I did notice, two things I noticed on this that made me like it more. One is the, the thing with the gun where they, where they're sitting at the poker table and the guy asked to see the gun. This is just me being dumb, but it didn't occur to me until this time that it, that's him getting his gun away from him. Like I, I didn't, I, for some reason I am, and maybe it's just been too long since I've seen it and I was too young when I saw it the first time. But this time I'm like, oh shit, he's taking, that's how he takes his gun away from him. The second thing was when he walks into those into that neighborhood and he says, I'm here for Alonzo. And you see the guy kind of look and he looks over at Terry Crews and Terry Crews is like, oh, I'm in this movie. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and he kind of says, it was so jarring to see Tony, to uh, see Terry Crews saying there like, say something, man, right. say something. What's up? But um, and you see him kind of step aside and I'm thinking, oh, he's here because he, he knows he's his partner and he, you know, we're having a business meeting or something like that. But th- it could be argued that he's stepping aside because he wants Ethan Hawke to do something about Alonzo, that he sees Alonzo as a problem. Again, I'm not saying the movie executes these things in the best possible way, but there is a degree to which I'm personally buying into the movie's thesis a little bit more because of those little moments of texture, those little things that I'm seeing where I'm going, okay, well, clearly this is the kind of movie where when you watch it the second time, you see all the seeds of what um, the peripheral characters around Denzel um, are feeling uh, in a way that he won't let you see the first time. Right. Well, and it is, you know, the peripheral peripheral characters are worth mentioning only because, as you just pointed out, one of them is Terry Crews. Everybody in this movie is somebody. And there's a little bit of that guest star uh, syndrome where it's like every single person they talk to is a celebrity of some sort. And everyone who shows up in the movie, whether it's another cop or a criminal, is a recognizable face. I mean, it has an amazing supporting cast. Some of the people like uh, Eva Mendes, who plays Denzel Washington's wife, wasn't really anybody at the time this movie was made. Terry Crews wasn't Terry Crews at the time that he's a, sort of a glorified extra in this right. movie. Um, but what do you think of the supporting cast? And what do you think of of Anton, Antoine Fuqua's decision to put a lot of like musicians in supporting roles? Yeah, I noticed that. Um, you've got Snoop Dogg in there. You've got Dr. Dre in there. Um... Macy Gray uh, shows up. Macy Gray is in there as well. Macy Gray is wonderful in this movie. She is I, really I think, great. Yeah, 
I think she is fantastic. Um, yeah, no, it's great. You've got all you Berenger shows up. This is like the second or third movie I've seen this week with Tom Berenger in it, which is just really funny to me for some reason. Uh, like late period Tom Berenger, not like you know uh, uh, the Berenger uh, Renaissance. Um, but yeah, even my, Eden my younger like, sister when we were little uh, had a huge crush on Tom Berenger. As she should. Yeah, I mean, why not? But um, uh, yeah, I'm always happy to see Scott Glenn because you know how much I love Sansa Lambs. And and when Eva Mendes shows up, when she opens the door, it was that weird thing where, and this is absolutely no disrespect to Eva Mendes at all. I kind of forgot Eva Mendes existed, and it was like it was like a thing where she opened the door and I look at her, I'm like, that's a face I've seen ten thousand times, and I completely <laughs> forgot. But I but it's been so long, yeah. and I completely forgot. I was like, oh my god, I forgot about you. You know, and I feel, I feel bad saying that because I almost said it out loud. Like, holy shit, it's even. <laughs> And um, she's great. I mean, she's underserved, I think, kind of by design. But yeah, no, I think um, I think I would love to see a little more Dre. I think Snoop Dogg was great. I think I think put the decision to put Snoop Dogg in the wheelchair. I think was really um, really fun, just as a for for a, the a set piece uh, uh, concerns. Um, just the fact that because Snoop is so big, and is he going to chase down Ethan Hawke? And I think it was an interesting way to level the playing field, but um, also not necessarily a uh, what you might call an ableist perspective on the wheelchair-bound person and anything like that. I think he was really, really funny, and really, really his scene with Denzel was really fun. Uh, but Macy Gray to me is the MVP. Yeah, yeah, she's awesome. Uh, it also surprised me to see Peter Green and Nick Chinland. Uh, both as fellow cops, because I didn't know those two scumbags could occupy the same space. <laughs> I thought it was a Ron Silver time cop situation, <laughs> uh, because they are interchangeably scummy and very at home in a David Ayer movie. Are we also seeing, I'm, and I'm not looking at the MDB right now, but are we also seeing a young Fran Kranz? Yeah. Is uh, one of the college kids, right? In the yeah. car. I noticed he had, he had the floppy hair, the, the, the floppy douchey hair that boys all had at, around the early two thousands. Um, I noticed him in there too. I don't think he had any lines. Maybe he might have had one or two, but, um, yeah, I can't remember. Not that I can. I think he just, I... he just generally just is afraid. I think that was kind right. of his thing. Right. He's the one that Denzel's pulling over. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a wonderful cast. I can't believe this movie's almost 20 years old. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck do you though and i and i, and I need to kind of just because i'm not, not i think you're i think you're a little more down on the movie than i am. i think i'm, I'm i still I, like it i i sound very down on it because there are things about it that really frustrate me overall i still like it what what i'm curious about is because almost everything that i look at with all my notes everything i was thinking when it comes to this movie one is the structure two are the performances that's great but so much of it is just the sociopathic behavior of of alonzo that we see and maybe you're lucky maybe you don't i mean we see it obviously uh in certain elected officials but (laughs) the the way that you see somebody control the room by sheer force of personality like are you the kind of person because knowing you the way i do i know you're not that way i know you're not that kind of person you don't necessarily try to you don't go up to people and cajole them and try to get them like you know but i know so many people who behave this way and not not that it's a bad thing being extroverted and 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 bringing trying to bring out things in others whether it's for good or ill you know is, is a is a solid personality trait to have but i was so fascinated by the way that even though we talked about it being kind of overacting the way that Alonzo is 
always doing his best to manipulate everybody in the room that he can because it's this place of colossal insecurity. It's this place of like, it's like I need to make sure I have a handle on everybody. I need to I need to make sure that I know, you know, what this person's thinking, what that person's thinking. I've got to make sure that it's almost like an alpha move where it's like, oh, I got to go and break this guy's balls to kind of let him know that I'm the alpha. And I need to go over here and do this and say this. And if this guy's quiet over here, then he's going to be my target. I'm going to really try to pull something out of him. And I don't necessarily mean it in a bullying way and, and, and certainly not in a horrible, destructive way the way this character is, but just – I, I just I don't know what it is. Maybe just particular um, in my life, I see a lot of people who, and and to be honest, kind of look up to people as an introvert who I kind of sometimes want to be more like that. Where I want to be able to kind of like just like flash and talk to somebody real, you know, out of nowhere and say something like that and have enough confidence to kind of walk around in that kind of way. And I know it's absolutely obnoxious when it's taken too far, but I think that that kind of cult of personality extends. To almost every subgroup we have in our culture and explains a lot of our like tribalism. It, it explains mm-hmm. a lot of our, the way we break ourselves into groups and the way, especially this idea of street knowledge, the way that Denzel and Scott Glenn are throwing around these, 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 uh, you know, proverbs of street knowledge. And, and of course we learn that it's all bullshit, but it's something that's so comforting that really lets people, I think it's how people get latched on. You know, you think about not just in politics, but just in any kind of subgroup, you see people repeating things and whether they're true or not, they sound good, you know, and that, well, that's just something we live by. You know, it was like Denzel's thing about, do you want to go home? You know, you want to go to jail or you want to go home? It's like, what's more complicated than that? But that sounds <laughs> so good. And he said it so many times and he's such a force of personality that even if Ethan Hawke isn't necessarily buying into it, as a viewer, I'm buying into it. I'm going like, oh, he's he's right. I mean, he sounds confident enough, you know. <laughs> and I'm just, is that something you experience, or is that something you notice the way? Because that's that's what, and I, maybe you know, my other people too. That's to me what's so captivating about the character. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I definitely think it's what's captivating about the character. I think it's what has made this movie live on. I think without Denzel Washington giving the performance he does, this isn't a movie that goes on to gross over a hundred million dollars. This isn't a movie that lives on, you know, TNT replays for 20 years and, uh, is beloved by dads everywhere. Um, because yeah, we, we enjoy watching someone, um, act out in a way that, you know, we often don't and we enjoy, we like to see bad people being bad, you know, and that's essentially what Denzel Washington is doing in a, in a huge way in this movie. Um, I don't, I can't think of a ton of instances in my own life where I'm surrounded by people like this. I, you know, like you, I'm certainly envious of people who are confident. Um, and, who don't mind being in social situations because they're able to talk to people. And, um, but I think anybody who, who comes close to what Denzel Washington is in this movie, uh, I can't get far enough away from, you know, uh, I can't stand people who are half of what he is in this movie. Um, but it, but it is certainly interesting to watch in the context of a film. You know, I, I wouldn't ever want to be in the same room with Alonzo Harris, but he's 
he's very, very watchable on screen. Here's and here's another thing I'll just put out there because I and I think you and I both agree that the Ethan Hawke character isn't ever seduced, that he's always stays to his morals, and that even though he participates in some of these things, he isn't ever thinking that it's the right thing to do. He hasn't ever proved himself, quote unquote, on to be on Alonzo's team. Is it almost better is it almost better to see Alonzo take himself down? Is it? I'm wondering. Is it? Is it? Is it better to see the Ethan Hawke character push back against the ideology in a, in, a, in a more complex way? I know, obviously, that they have the ending fight and there's that standoff at the end. But I'm almost wondering if it's maybe more satisfying to see him collapse in on himself the way the movie sort of more so does, right? Because when the best moment is when when Ethan Hawke kicks the bedroom door down and. It's not just the best moment because Eva Mendes is there, but when when you immediately see Denzel switch on to Bullshitter, right. where he doesn't expect Ethan Hawke to be alive, he's probably scrambling in his mind because he doesn't know what the hell he's going to do. All he knows is he can probably talk his way out of the situation. All he knows is he can probably convince him or get him to 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 to, to lower the gun as he's done multiple times. We know as an audience that that's not going to happen. We know as an audience that okay, he is. SOL right now like he is completely screwed and we know we're cheering on Ethan Hawke but when you see that flash in Alonzo's eyes where he's like I know how to get out of this there's almost that familiarity to it there's almost that thing where you're like I want to just see him implode on himself you almost want to see because I think one of the alternate cuts of this movie is uh, uh, Ethan Hawke threatens to expose him and he actually kills himself really and I, I read, I think I read that somewhere. I think there's an alternate cut or an alternate ending that was either shot and not, uh, or not shot or written and not shot where one of, and it could be apocryphal. I have no idea. It's the internet. But <laughs> one of the things, one of the things that I did read was that was one of the drafts that where it was basically that he eventually succumbs to his own lack of options. I don't ever see that. I don't think that reads. In no, not at it's, all. That's not the way you would never see that happen. That's like when people talk about Trump dropping out. It's like, no, he's that's never right. that's never going to happen. That's he will. No, no, that's not him. Um, it will not matter how bad anything gets. Uh, I don't see that. But what I do like is the idea of us watching him kind of collapse on himself. I don't know if that makes sense. I just it, to me, I'm always I'm almost wondering. I'm trying to give the movie more credit and thinking maybe the Ethan Hawke character is written the way he is because it's more about exposing us as an audience to the pitfalls of that behavior than it is about this heroic rookie cop overcoming him through strength. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because, (laughs) because, uh, again, for a movie that I think sort of prides itself on being very, cynical and very gritty and very like about the streets. Um, I think it is sort of fundamentally conservative and I think there's something very conservative about this notion of Denzel Washington bringing himself down and sort of, it goes back to, you know, in the 1930s during the Hayes code or something where you have to show that crime doesn't pay. Right. Um, and so we have to get Denzel Washington bringing about his own destruction uh, through his own actions. And I agree that that is probably 
Uh, is it more satisfying than Ethan Hawke finally being like, ah, fuck it, and shooting him? Because at least there's a character arc, you know? Like, yeah. at least that would be something for Ethan Hawke. Instead, he just remains the same static character the entire way through. Um, I don't know. I don't know which I would prefer. It looks like there was a scene where Denzel lived... Uh, I can't see, I can't find what I was looking at before, but it does look like there was at least an alternate ending where he lives. I think he turns himself in or surrenders or something, but, um, yeah, no, I don't know. At this point, I think we're just kind of talking about the, the, not, not being critical of the movie's structure, but also maybe just trying to feel where that, if there's any one fix or any one thing we'd like to see more of, like, is I'm, I'm still curious. You, you, so you don't find when you're, when that first 10, 15 minutes, when you get in the car and you're, and, and you're Ethan Hawke and you're listening to this guy talk, are you immediately just like put off? Like, are you immediately just like, I do not like this person? Yeah. Okay. From the moment he sits down in the diner. Okay. Denzel Washington is an asshole to him from word one. This is very interesting because <laughs> I'm looking at it and I'm going, how do I get this asshole's respect? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, no. And I am not an aggro, like, I'm not going to be a swinging dick. I'm not that guy at all. Like, for me, it's almost like, how can I, because I have that, like, service personality thing where it's like, I just want to see if I can find a way to, like, I, I don't know, like, how can I fit in under this guy's jurisdiction? That's, that's really funny because I, honestly, like, I was just imagining you now, like, walking into the diner and just immediately standing back up and walking out. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Like, not saying a word, but just getting up and walking. <laughs> which, is, which we're talking about the character. I'm saying the character is a little underwritten. I think that's kind of one of the things we should see more of, which is like Ethan Hawke never explores any alternatives to this, right? Like he's never like, I should make a phone call because <laughs> does anybody know? I understand that um, Denzel sets him up as like, oh, well, you did the drugs and I'm going to protect you and I'm boxing you in. But you would think at some point, like, the meeting with the three wise men, you think you just run over and be like, guys, you know what's going on. <laughs> um, I don't want to get too much into this, but I do want, just want to ask, uh, because it honestly didn't occur to me when I said like, okay, let's do a show on training day. I was just trying to think of a movie that was, you know, commercial. And we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. Um, and then I started watching it. And I was like, oh, right. This is a movie about shitty, corrupt cops. Yep. How much of, you know, what's going on in the world right now played into this viewing of the movie for you? It was impossible not yeah. to see. I mean, it was literally impossible. And really, you know, I, like I, I kept thinking of The Wire and I'm, and I'm thinking I'm a huge fan of The Wire and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm watching this and I'm going, I'm trying to think of all the times where I cheered on, you know, McNulty and Herc and all those guys like or moments of, uh, let's say, questionable morality. You know, when the when you, the scene where they break open Scott Glenn's bunker and they're handing out the money and, you know, we've seen this dramatized a thousand times Do the cops. Does this cop go corrupt? Does does he have that moment of, of recognition? Does he have that moment of you know, I'm going to make a very important decision here. And what I do think I was looking at when I was watching this movie this time, especially is how much institutional pressure there really can be. Um, because, and I don't want to think about it as cops. Like I, I think about it as a teacher. I'm a teacher. I know lots of great teachers. I know lots of bad teachers. I know lots of teachers who don't do their job in an effective way. I know lots of teachers who 
get away with doing a lot less than they're supposed to or do things in a way that I wouldn't necessarily condone. And I know as a person who, at least I try to be a good teacher, I, I try to find a way to work within that system. I try to find a work to work a way to work around it. I try to find a way to work around those people. Um, I try to find ways to maybe bring them in or at least hold them accountable for when they're doing things that don't necessarily jive with the way I think it should be done. Um, but it is literally impossible to watch this movie and not just be disgusted by the fact that they're even doing anything that they're doing. When he's, they're talking about the chokehold, you know, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the alleyway where Denzel says to him, like, Oh, I see you use that chokehold. Like that's, uh, you know, that's not uh, procedure. And then Ethan Hawke talks about how, you know, with, with, with the culture right now, like we, we, any, any little bit, you know, we're going to be screwed. I'm going to be on the news and things like that. You, it, it is very, very difficult to watch the movie and not think about how badly our system needs to be changed. <laughs> like it really is so much about that because any system will be taken over by people like this. I mean, it sort of alludes to what I've been saying the whole time, which is there are these captivating personalities, these swinging dicks, these know-it-alls, these people who have been doing whatever particular job it is so long that they feel like they know every single in and out, and they are going to be the loudest voices, and they are going to be one that, the ones who ruin things for everybody else. They are going to be, be the people who take idealistic people in whatever job it is and corrupt them and make them into horrible people. And those people are responsible for their behavior and the things that they do. But it is it, it did make me think about just how deeply corrupt so many of our institutions, including policing, are and how overwhelmingly, you know, change is needed. And and I you know, thankfully I was thinking about, you know, Minneapolis and, and, and some of the places where we are starting to see change. Um and not to get on a soapbox about it, but it was just, it was striking this time thinking of, and I was sort of holding myself accountable going, look how cool this guy, it's the Goodfellas principle, right? It, look how cool these guys are doing these terrible things. Look how much the movie wants me to think that Denzel is this guy who knows it all and things like that. Um, and, and I just, I, I was really like looking at it kind of like looking in the mirror and kind of thinking like, Oh God, like I'm as culpable for this culture as anything else. Even though I've never done any of the things these people are doing, it's kind of like any, any time you watch something that idealizes this kind of behavior, you do kind of have to think back to like, how does that influence my own thought process? How does it influence my prejudices? How does it influence my, you know, uh, my feelings about social justice and, and things like that. So, um, the, the short answer is, yeah, I was thinking about it a lot. <laughs> Um, yeah, well said. It's, I probably should have put more thought into it when I decided to do, uh, training. Day. No, not, I, I wasn't, I, when I asked you that, I, we, before we, we started everybody, I said to Patrick, I was like, jokingly kind of like, Hey, so what made you pick this movie? Cause to me it was like, <laughs> Oh, it's completely obvious why he made, he made right. like it's completely, it's like, yes, this is a movie we need to watch right now. Absolutely. Cause we need to examine our shit and figure out how to make it better. Um, but it was just funny the way you reacted because you were like, oh, well, you know, and I was like, no, I'm kidding. And I know exactly <laughs> <why>. <laughs> but it really wasn't why I picked it, you know, yeah, yeah. oddly enough. Uh, I just I guess I wish David Ayer had more to say about the corruption that he sees, you know, just in general. He, he just writes movie after movie. And I haven't seen End of Watch. My understanding of End of Watch is that it is not about scumbag cops. It's about cops, but not scumbag cops. Every movie he writes is about scumbag cops, but he just has nothing to say about scumbag cops except that, hey, some cops are scumbags. 
and he doesn't seem to have a point of view. Like you look at, you know, you mentioned uh, what, what are those other ones? Sabotage. You said End of Watch. Street Kings. Um, Street Kings, right? Training Day, etc. He is. He seems to really ride that line of you can't tell what he feels about it because, as you said, he has no particular perspective on it. You know, then you look at something like Suicide Squad, and you're like, well, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Who are we rooting for again? You know, right. certainly not. Certainly not this movie. Um, <laughs> are they remaking the Wild Bunch? Uh, it's been talked about. I see a credit, a screenplay draft credit for the Wild Bunch twenty twenty two, credited to David Ayer. Oh, perfect! He's the guy to rewrite it. Can't wait. <laughs> what do you? What do you think? So, so all right. Just if we want to close with some David Ayer talk, like. Are you just when you see that name in the credits? Are you just like repelled, or is is he somebody you can work with? Uh, I think he's done enough that I Suicide Squad really uh, bothered me. <laughs> um, up until that point, it was like, oh, okay, another movie about scumbag cops, cool. But I think there's stuff to like in Fury. Um. Oh, Dark Blue. He wrote Dark Blue, a movie about scumbag cops uh, that I really like, actually. I, I, I like that movie a lot. Harsh Times, movie about scumbag cops. Um, he just has the one thing that he keeps doing. Um, no, I will continue to give him chances, I think, uh, unless it's, you know, another movie about scumbag cops, and then I can probably skip it. But I, there was stuff I liked in Fury, um, like I said. I like Street Kings. I, I like Training Day. You know, there's enough of his stuff that I've liked that I haven't completely written him off. How about you? Yeah, no, I'm in the same boat. I was just curious because, I, like I said, like he is that he is that kind of aggro, kind of douchebaggy. Like, well, I'm gonna. I, I know, I know somebody's gonna get punched in this movie. Like, I know, I know, right. I know there's gonna be something I don't want to say. I know somebody's gonna have a shotgun barrel up to their face in this movie. But you know, we we need all stripes, and I just. I don't find the movie particularly because I was one of the notes I wrote down was like, is this a kind of a right wingy kind of thing? Is this a vigilante? Is this a dirty Harry? But like the movie doesn't really have a political perspective. Um, Cause like, as you said, David Ayer doesn't really have much to say. Um, so I don't necessarily know that I would classify training day as a movie that has a particular like political bent necessarily. No, it's really just sort of a character. Yeah, it's very cynical, but it's really just this sort of, you know, character piece about one guy who's a scumbag and one guy who isn't and what happens when we stick them in a car together. And the answer is one guy will continue to be a scumbag and the other guy won't be, you know, and that's the thing. It's like nobody really changes at all in this movie. Um, one of them just ends up dead by the end. Just like life. Just like life. Anything else about Trinity? Yeah, you know what didn't happen in this movie? Nobody got their dick set on fire, Patrick. Would have been a better movie. Scott and Glenn getting his better. dick set on fire. What if what if they opened up the, the, the floor in Scott Glenn's house and it was just a bunch of dudes with their dicks set on fire in the basement? <laughs> you open the door to the bedroom and Eva Mendez is lighting people's dicks on fire. <laughs> People pay for that privilege. <laughs> From Eva Mendez, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you, Rob. This was a, a really good conversation about a movie that I uh, am a little conflicted on, but I like overall. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks, buddy. 
Uh, as always, go to our website every day, fthismovie.com. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at fthismovie. Listen to us in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, you can email us at fthismoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys very much for listening. Thanks for participating in June Sploitation. And we will see you next week. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.